Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 5. If you're physically able, will you stand with me while we read this passage of Scripture? <clears throat> Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, would you take the word and do what only you can do with it? Empower it by your Holy Spirit and use this time as just a mouthpiece for you to declare the praises of Him who has called us from darkness to your marvelous light. I pray, Father, you'll take the truth of Scripture and embed it in our hearts this morning. What a wonderful, unspeakable, reverential passage of Scripture this is. The, the tale of the unspeakable mystery of how that you became a man. And you took on human flesh and didn't come down here to occupy a throne. You will one day. But you came down here to lay your life down on a cross. We thank you, Lord, that the thrones are preceded by crosses. And we thank you for the work of the cross for us. And now, Lord, we want to look again at your plan for the work of the cross in us. May we allow you to have your way. May we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, which will be our reasonable act of worship. May we not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we'll be able to test and approve what your will is. You're good, you're pleasing, and your perfect will. God, we want to just lay down and let you take up your life in us because you ever live for us and we live because you live. Hallelujah to your name. Thank you for the unspeakable example of love that's found in this text. Thank you that love doesn't just say, love does. And I thank you, Father, that you made good on your promises, sent the best you had to give, and broke the brow of your precious Son on the cross of Calvary so that we might be saved. Thank you for doing that, Lord. You're not in the withholding business. You don't withhold things. You're not stingy. The devil tried to talk to Adam into thinking that you had up something up your sleeve. Oh, you need to eat the fruit of the tree because God's holding out on you. He's not showed you everything you need to see. There's some things he's secretive about. He's a stingy God. Why don't you assert your rights and take of, the tr take of this fruit? And he took, he took the lie. And, he, 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 and we do it all the time. Help us to cease and to listen to you and trust you because you're not a God who withholds. You're a God who freely gives. Thank you for that. We love you and worship you and praise you. In the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we looked at this text last week and we asked the question, and this is the question I hope that we give careful, careful, careful consideration to. I hope we gave it careful consideration last Sunday and I hope throughout the week that maybe the Holy Spirit prompted you in your interaction with your relationships and the way you live your life and the way that I live mine to ask this one question. I like questions that are either one way or the other. I like questions that are, are opposites. I noticed in our Barney book the other day, you wouldn't think you'd hear about Barney this morning, but we've got a Barney book and one of our Barney books that I read to Paul all the time has... It's obvious that one of the ways even secular people have picked up on that you learn is by opposites. 
this hat is big, this hat is little, this ball is big, this ball is little. And I think some ways the Bible can be taught that way. Are you going to walk the narrow path? Are you going to walk the broad path? Are you going to build your life on the rock? Or are you going to build your life on the sand? Are you going to be rich down here? Or are you going to be rich toward God? And you start set, setting forth those opposites. I encourage you to look in the Bible at examples like that and teach the Bible to your children like that. And one of the things that I'd like to look at in this text, and I think we can live from this text, is one of those kind of questions. Is our life confirm the gospel, or does my life contradict the gospel? It's probably going to be one or the other. Several years ago, I was watching a 2020 broadcast. That's back when you know 2020, I guess, was on. I don't know if it's on now or not. And back then, there was a famous rock star. His name is Ozzy Osbourne. And he had a show, a profane show, on television where it was a reality show. And they basically just took a camera and followed his family in the ebb and flow of their lives and showed their profane mouths and the way they lived their lives. And it was pretty profane. And they interviewed their daughter on there. It was Ozzy Osbourne's daughter. And she was dressed up in all her gothic garb and all the things that go along with that. I'm not cutting her down. Lost people act lost. And so uh, she was dressed up in all her things. And the interviewer asked her a pretty significant question. And it, it reverberated in my mind after she asked her this. She said, have you ever been tempted to rebel? <laughs> she went, Rebel? Rebel against what? You know, they said rebel. She said rebellion for me would be to become a nun. And I thought how true that was. But you know what? Here's the thing. I thought she's better off. Watch it now. Hold on. Don't throw a book at me. She's better off than many children who are raised in Christian homes where mom and dad profess one thing and live another. At least they're authentic about their rebellion. And she knows that the the, 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 the decisions she makes are clear cut. If I stay with my mom and dad, I'm in rebellion. But they don't try to hide it. They're in rebellion. They celebrate rebellion. If I turn away from that, then I'll consecrate and give myself over to some religious thing, she thought. But at least the lines weren't blurred. Because in many Christian homes, we say we love Jesus, but throughout the rest of the week, our lives are a contradiction to what we profess. And so our, Christian, our children wind up confused. They don't know what rebellion would be because they see it lived out every day under the cloak of submission. Major problem. Major problem in Christianity. It's not just being age-integrated that helps come along and, and, and comes beside that. We are an age-integrated fellowship. We do want those relationships to be nurtured and cared for between the young and the old. That's the biblical pattern of how you learn and disciple. But I can tell you this, it is no substitute for holy living at home. It will not overcome rebellion in your home. It will not overcome your secular mindset and our lifestyles if they are secular. If there's no consecration in my life, it matters not what I say from this pulpit. As a matter of fact, if there's no consecration in my life and there's no love for Jesus to back it up in the way I live the rest of the week, I will do nothing but confuse my children. That's why they get up to around 18 or whatever and leave the church. It's because of that. It's because we need to live out what we profess. Our lives do not any longer need to be a contradiction of the gospel. They need to confirm the gospel. 
The pattern that Jesus laid it out right here, this pattern in this text, this is one of the most holy texts in all the Bible. It's one of the greatest texts in all the Bible. It is like the pinnacle of New Testament teaching about our Lord and what He did and came to do. Jesus Christ, though He were equal with God, in other words, God Himself, comes down here, clothes Himself with human flesh, clothes His glory with human flesh, takes on a human coat, if you will, and displays God to you and I, and doesn't come down here to occupy a throne, but comes down here and makes a beeline to the cross. A cross that was not arranged by the Roman guard, a cross that was not arranged by the religious zealots of the time, or the legalists, but a cross that was arranged by His Father. That's what He did. And you know what? This text, we look at this, and you look at the text, and there's another mention of the word love. You may tell you why. Because this text is not necessarily about a definition of what love is. This text is a demonstration of what love does. And see, you can learn what love is by looking at what love does. It doesn't have to mention the word love in here because it's a display of what love does. And love acts. The Bible says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says on the cross in Romans 3.25 that God demonstrated His righteousness. He's not going to overlook sin. And in Romans 5.8, the Bible says on the cross God demonstrated His love. But He's also going to save sinners. Amen for that. Amen. But this should be the pattern of all human relationships right here. This right here is our pattern. It's not only our pattern, it's not an example to emulate. It's not that. The life of Christ is not for something to me to imitate. The life of Christ is something for me to die to myself so He lives it through me. He is not my example. He is my supply. He is who I and you now are. We've been released from the tyranny, as we said earlier, of living for ourselves and living self-serving lives. And we have this opportunity now. And the door of heaven has been flung open where Christ can have His way with you and I. That in effect, we could be like Christ in the fact that Jesus lives on the inside of us and our clothes are nothing but human flesh wrapped around the very deity, the provision, the power, and yes, the love of God. Well, the love of God's a great thing. Michael sang about it this morning. What will separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus? Answer, nothing. Nothing. And we look at the, we look at, you know, Jesus is God. And we look at this, and this should be the pattern for all of our human relationships. We're going to touch on a couple of them. We touched on a couple of them last week. And we can look at this, and it could, your life and my life could fall in one category or the other. And I want you to answer the question silently. Is the way I'm living in this area contradict the gospel, or does it confirm it? Which one is it? Alright? And the relationship between a wife and a husband. Let's go look at it. We touched on it last week. Let's go to a look at Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go look at Ephesians chapter 5. We talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or do we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit? Don't we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit? We, we know we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but don't we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit? Look, now I'm not going to start in verse 22, because if you start in verse 22, we're starting in the middle of the text. So most people go right to verse 22. And they forget about everything that's said preceding verse 22. Let's don't go to verse 22. Let's go to verse 15. Here's what he says. See then that you walk circumspectedly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit are found in verses 19, 20, and 21. Now listen carefully. There are three in here. Three evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I know this is a review, but it's worth reviewing. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But not every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. To be indwelt by the Holy Spirit means that you're saved. The Bible says in Romans 8 and 9, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, then you are not His. The only condition that's known in the Bible is either you are filled with the Holy Spirit or dwelt by the Holy Spirit and saved, or you are absent of the Holy Spirit and you're lost. That's it. But you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, believer, in here, right now, if you've repented toward God, put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, the text, the tense of this says, do not be drunk with wine, which is, being, which is dissipation. And the tense is this, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what that says. There are one, there's one indwelling, but there are many fillings. And as you yield, you and I yield progressively more and more of our lives over to the control of the Holy Spirit, we begin to be filled with Him. Which simply means to be controlled by Him. Ha-ha! Human flesh cloaked over the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit inside me. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus was, right? God cloaked with human flesh... But somebody's got to die because there are two competing influences inside that are a war. Our carnal nature and the Spirit of God who lives within us. Who's going to win the war? And he says, listen, as you let the Holy Spirit win the war, you yield your, your life over to Him, there are going to be three evidences that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. There are three. Look at it. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart toward the Lord, giving thanks always... For all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Evidences of holy, the Holy Spirit, being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Number one, joy. Joy. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be a person of joy. Does it mean happiness? Happiness depends on happenings. Joy is an outward expression of an inward delight that transcends happenings. It is independent of circumstances, can't be threatened by circumstances, and can't be taken away by them either. Amen? He said, listen, you'll be a person of joy. It doesn't mean that everything... And you know what? Most of that time it won't be because of your circumstances. Forest, it will be in spite of them. He said, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart toward the Lord. Full of joy. The second one is gratitude. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always to, for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say this to you? Mark this down. We've talked about this before. Mark it down. Write it down. And keep it in the fontlet on the top of your head. A person who gripes all the time and fusses and gripes and never displays gratitude is not filled with the Holy Spirit. To complain and to gripe and to fuss is an affront to the sovereignty of God. God, you're, I'm smarter than you are. In the situation that I'm in, that you're sovereign over, you should have changed or amended or you need to let it stop right now. But to be grateful means there's a level of trust. It's childlike faith. We talked about the fact that our faith should not be childish. But oh, brothers and sisters, it should be childlike. And we say, oh, 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 Lord, no matter what, I'm going to trust you. No matter what, I'm going to thank you. I want to find something to thank you about. And the third one is you'll be submissive. 
Look at verse 21. And what was the pattern? Who's the pattern? Who is the example? And not only the example. Wait a minute now. Who is the supply for us to live like this? Now listen. Here's the key. Here's the key. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all He requires of you. Think about that for a minute. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything He requires out of you. He expects nothing from you. What He expects is for you to let His Son on the inside have His way with you. And His expectations are from His Son. And His Son doesn't disappoint. And He says, you know what? What did Jesus do? He, equal with God, put Himself under the authority of God, clothed Himself with human flesh, and that is our example. It's just submitting, submitting to one another in the fear of God. You'll listen to the submission. In other words, what Jesus did told for us, beautifully displayed for us in Philippians chapter 2, is the pattern and the supply for all human relationships. If it's manifest in your life, in your relationships, your life will look like this. Now some of your Bibles have a heading in between verses 21 and 22, and that is unfortunate. Because there is no break between verses 21 and 22. What it's saying is, if you submit to one another in the fear of God, then your submission will look like this. First one, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Can I say this to you? That means what it says, and it says what it means. It means that a woman who is under the control of the Holy Spirit, will be submissive to her husband. And the converse is true. A woman who is not submissive to her husband is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's just it. Now, here's the wonderful thing about that. You ever thought about this? Think about this for just a minute. Jesus revealed Himself to the women first at the t- after He was resurrected from the dead. you know that? If he wanted to do the conventional wisdom thing, he would have revealed himself to the disciples or a handful of religious people or something because at that time, the status of women had degraded to such a low level that their testimony couldn't even be used in court. So so if, if he were on trial for having resurrected from the dead, they could not call forth the witnesses of these women. In, they would have been heard. But yet he appeared to them first. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, elevated the status of womanhood. And the feminists degraded every single day. They shame you and make you think that you're something less simply because God wants you to submit. That's a lie from the gates of hell. And it is ruining our churches and it's ruining this country. I want you to know something. I was going to go and read there, but look at the line of temptation that Jesus endured for your behalf and my behalf in Matthew chapter 4. You know what He said? You know what the devil said to Him? You know what the first words He said to Him were? If you are the Son of God, do this. See, the reason, sweet ladies, that you can submit to your husbands and do it and fulfill the Word of God in your life in that area is if you know who you are. If your identity is wrapped up in Christ, it does not demean you to submit. It just means you understand who you are. 
That you're a flower in the garden of God and He loves you enough that He would put lines of protection between you and the devil that go between the husband, Christ, and God. And by the time the devil reaches you, he's got to go through God, Jesus, your husband, and good luck by the time he gets there. And what would the world have you believe? The secular age? Oh, you're less than a person. You're a half person in the eyes of your husband. I'm going to tell you something, husbands. Don't sit there and say, my wife needs to hear this. That is not directed to you. You don't need to be listening right now. It doesn't say, it says, wives submit to your husband. You check out for the next couple of minutes. Wife, it does not demean you. You are a flower in the garden of God. It elevates you. Jesus took status. He In Matthew chapter 19, the religious crowd thought they were going to trap him about divorce, Gary. You remember? He said, hey, what about this? And he started asking about divorce. Back then, the, the laws regarding divorce had, had absolutely plummeted to such low levels that if a wife burned the evening meal, it was a cause for divorce. And Jesus said, let me tell you this. I wrote that, by the way. Back when Moses said that, that was me. And I'm the only one who gets to interpret it. And let me tell you what it is. Except for the cause of adultery, and we believe that's unrepentant adultery, where somebody says, this is the way I'm going to live. This is it. You have to deal with it. Unrepentant adultery. Except for that cause, there's no biblical basis for divorce and abandonment. First... Corinthians chapter 7. And he said, what was he doing? He was elevating the status of womanhood. You goober-headed men who think that if your wife can't cook right and you've got a reason to divorce your wife, let me tell you something right now. From the beginning it wasn't so like that. And I haven't changed. You're to protect her. You're to nurture her. You're to care for her. You're to love her. And wives, I'm telling you, I know there's some difficult circumstances and I know what the devil's line of reasoning with you is. Ah, oh, you're smarter than he is. You're gifted in this area. You've got more gifts than that suggested is crazy. Why are you going to submit to that and put yourself through that and demean yourself? And the opposite is true. When you're anchored by your relationship with Jesus, it's the devil going, hey, if you are, why would you do that? Assert your rights. Can you imagine the Garden of Gethsemane? There he is right there, sweating drops of blood. And right up above him is the Temple Mount. Right up there is the, is the throne. And the devil's saying, listen, don't go through this cross business. There's the throne right there. Take it right now. Take it right now. It's yours for the habit. Take it right now. Take it right now. And Jesus said, and he's wrestling back and forth. And I know that he is mine for the taking. That's my rightful throne. I'm going to come through this area. This mountain's going to split in two one day. And I'm going to go in there and sit on that throne. And he's saying, take it now. Take it now. Take it now. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to take it now. I'm putting aside my rights as God. I'm not, no longer not God. But I'm putting aside my rights as God because I'm going to reach and redeem and rescue Al Oglesby from eternity in hell. And if I don't go to the cross, he will die in his sin and be separated from me forever. And you say, we listen to this garbage from the devil that says, assert your rights. Show who you are. You show who you are by laying down your rights based on the identity that you have in Christ. Think about some of them. You're accepted in the Beloved. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In Him you have forgiveness of sin, redemption through His blood. You are in the Beloved. You are seated in the heavenlies in, the, in Christ Jesus right now. You're going to be presented before Him one day holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. 
Hallelujah. If you are a child of God, you look back at the devil and say, you know what? I am a child of God. It's the same thing they did on the cross, isn't it? Come down. Assert your right. Show who you are. Do things on my terms, the enemy would say. Do things on my terms. After all, it makes common sense. Do things on my terms. Prove that you're a son of God. Let me ask you a question. Raising Lazarus from the dead didn't do it. Healing a blind man didn't do it. Giving uh, a, a, a crippled man the ability to walk didn't do it. Taking away leprosy didn't do it. You think coming down the right cross would do it? He proved who he was by staying there. Because love held him there. Love held him there. That's the basis for all of this. We'll get there in a minute. Now, husbands, you can listen. Husbands and wives, you check out. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How'd you like to be measured by that standard? You can listen to this part, wife. How would you like to be measured by that standard? Love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Two things come to mind when I read that. Two. One is initiative and sacrifice. Initiative and sacrifice. I'm the biggest goober head in the room in this regard. When things are kind of on a low ember in my, in my marriage and the fan needs to be flamed. Sometimes I'm just so goober-headed I won't recognize it. And then all of a sudden it'll hit me. Usually by my wife saying something. And, and it'll hit me. Man, you better fan the flame. Better take some initiative. You did not come to Christ. Christ came to you. You did not court Christ. Christ courted you. Ladies, young ladies in here, any man who's worthy of your hand will pursue you. Don't you pursue him. Don't you do it. For one thing, it'll set the, it'll set the wrong precedent for who's going to lead the home. And if he's worth your hand one day and he's a Christian, he'll persevere and he'll keep on going. I was reading the biography of autobiography, whatever you call it, biography, bottle of something, bibliography, something other, of Robbie Zacharias this week that Michael B.B. King looking at let me borrow. And he met his, who, who later became his wife, and his parents were opposed to, her parents were opposed to the relationship. You know what he did? He waited until God changed their heart. Enough said. Take the initiative. Take the initiative, men. Don't wait. Don't be good ahead me. Take the initiative and love sacrificially. See, we get to the very definition of this. This is the very definition of love. The reason that love need not be mentioned in the Philippians 2 text is because this text is not about defining love. It's about what love does. But when you see what love does, you have a working definition for it. And the working definition of love is this. I'm willing to lay down the rest of my life for the spiritual benefit primarily of my wife, my children, my church, and any lost people that might come in my way. I'm willing to put it down. I'm willing to put aside my rights. I'm willing to say I'm not going to be the big shot on big man on campus. I'm going to put aside my rights. 
I'm going to put aside sometimes my aspirations. I might put aside some of my dreams. I might put aside whatever. I could put aside my time. I'm going to consecrate myself to my Lord so I can lead my family and those who are entrusted to my care. These are the things I'm going to do because I'm willing to lay down my life for the spiritual benefit of others. That is agape love. It's a beautiful thing. Who's your supply? See, that's why you can't start this text in verse 22. When I do premarital counseling, I do not start this text in verse 22. And we always go over it. Because if you start it in verse 22 and you say, Wives submit, husbands love like Jesus, you leave out the Holy Spirit. See, everything that enables you to do what He's asking you to do is found in the preceding verses. To be filled with the Holy Spirit enables you to submit to your husband wife. To be filled with the Holy Spirit enables me to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. And if He has His way with me, it will be inevitable. Amen? And I'll live a life that's not contrary to the gospel. It will be conforming to the gospel to confirm it. That He might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, be, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. You know what that really means? It goes back to Matthew chapter 4. You going to love sacrificially? Hey, if you are the big man in the house, assert your rights, go in there and tell them a new sheriff's in town, and by the way, I'm in charge. The devil chides you. If you are, you know why? Because if you understand how much he loves you, you can begin to love yourself. It's not a morbid self-love that's self-serving. It's just an appreciation for the fact that you are free to love yourselves when it's viewed in the context that He first loved you. And that He loved you not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. And He loved you when you were a sinner, without strength, enemy, and ungodly. That's when He died for you. And if that's true, that means His love's unconditional. And if His love's unconditional, I can love myself. And if I can love myself, I can flat love my wife because we're one. Now, it goes on to say, children, obey your parents of the Lord. Children, I want you to say something to you. And don't, don't you forget this. If you dishonor your mother and father, your life is a contradiction to the gospel. The Bible says you are to honor your mother and father. Well, you don't know my mom. You don't know my dad. I don't see any qualifiers there. I don't see any qualifiers there. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right Honor, esteem, value your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise. The commandment is this, and you know what it is. It's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And the promise is that your days may be long upon the earth. It doesn't mean that you're going to live to be a ripe old age. It means that he was saying to the nation of Israel, if you habitually dishonor your mother and father, your society will crumble at its very foundation and you will no longer be a nation. Does that sound familiar? We talk about mom and dad. We've gone from dad knows right, father knows best, to Al Bundy. A bumbling, laughable joke of a father who is made fun of and demeaned by his family. I don't watch that show, but I know enough about it to know. It's the demeaning of the father and motherhood relationships that God's given. And it's not funny to God. You honor your mother and father. Pray for them. Oh, you don't know what kind of mom and dad I've got. Listen. 
Again, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can fulfill all these commands. But if you don't do that, listen to me now, if you don't do that, your life, listen to me now, your life is a living, breathing, daily contradiction to the Word of God and His Gospel. It's amazing, but one of the things that's marked out in Romans chapter 1 or 2, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 2, 1, I mean 1, 1, about uh, the things that would, it's like a digression progression is what we call it. How that you begin just denying that God exists even though you know He does. You become idolaters, you become fools, you become mixed up in your uh, sexual relationships, and on it goes, and it just keeps further and further down, and on the very bottom rung of the ladder, you know what it says? Disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. It's amazing. We don't usually attribute that much airtime to that, do we? Here's the deal. We'll finish this next week, God willing. What is said in the Philippians chapter 2 text is this. This is the model, <clears throat> the expectation, and the supply for every single one of your human relationships. That you as a Christian, if you're going to let Jesus have His way with you, when, it, when His life is manifest through you, wife, you'll be submissive to your husband. Husbands, you'll love your wife sacrificially by taking the initiative to love them and not waiting for them to get up to speed and say, hey, hooty hoo, I'm over here. Children, you'll obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You'll honor your mother and father. You'll esteem them. You'll value them. No qualifiers. You'll esteem them. You'll value them. You won't be an impediment. You won't be a stumbling block to them getting to the cross. I had a lady in our fellowship once years ago. I said, listen, here's the deal. Here's what I see in your dynamics between you and your husband. She's saved. The husband's lost. You follow me? She's saved. The husband's lost. She's coming in for counsel. He's wavered. He's antagonistic to the gospel. He came into my office for counsel. Like I shared the gospel with him. He said, let me ask you a question. When you went and got saved, he said, when did you get saved? I said, I got saved at People's Baptist Church. I was 12 years old in Hazelhurst, Georgia. He said, when you walked in the door that night, did you know you were going to get saved? I said, no. He said, well, I didn't come in here expecting to get saved either. I said, okay. We'll try again some other time. And let me tell you this. I saw where she constantly challenging his authority, constantly going against him. And even though he probably was making some unwise decisions, she was constantly challenging him. And I said, listen to me. You're a stomach block between him and the cross. Everything that you profess that you are. He looks at your life and looks at the cross and goes, man, there's some wide inconsistencies here. I said, start submitting. We use this text. Let the Holy Spirit have His way with you. Submit. Trust God the results. Two months later, he was on a job site in Buckhead. I went down to see him to have lunch with him. And we were sitting there at a, this fancy house. They were remodeling. We were in the driveway. And he bowed down in that driveway and he prayed to receive Christ. And I came home and I said, she called me up and said, how's your lunch go? And I said, you have a new husband. I'll let him tell you about it. She began to submit. She got out of the way. Her life confirmed the gospel. It no longer contradicted it. And he got saved. Can I say this? You and I have such a short view on things. We think like this. And we think about how these human relationships affect us. You know what God's looking at? The eternal destiny of those He's called you and I to love. That's how He sees it. Do you think He would take a wife and let her go through a difficult time submitting to a aggressive, unruly husband. I'm not talking about beating her or anything like that. I don't mean that. That's another matter. 
You think he would take her and ask her to submit like that so that she could get out of the way and he could encounter his son? He would do that. He flat would do that. You know why? Because he just loves you. He loves you. And he crushed the brow of his son on the cross of Calvary, embedded a crown of thorns there that were that long, and did that in order to reach, redeem, and purchase you and me. Oh, the love of God. How deep, how wide, how inexhaustible it surely must be. Let me ask you a question. Does your life confirm the gospel? Or does it contradict it? It's going to be one or the other. Give those you care about an honest look at Jesus. And you know what? If you've lived a life so far that's been contradictory for it, you know, you know what you do want? It can be purified that quick. That quick. That's what happened at Calvary. If you've got a dad or mom that you've habitually disrespected, could you imagine if you repented toward God and asked God to forgive you and you went to mom and dad and said, Mom, Dad, I'll tell you something. It's like the old adage. You could be in here and be, give the appearance of being submissive and yet still be. It's like Johnny. You remember Johnny, the story I told you about Johnny? And he was a hyperactive kid and he ran around all over the room and the teacher just could not get him to stop. She beat him and did everything she could to him. That's back when you could beat him and just beat him. I didn't mean beat. I did not mean beat. And it just had a little, just, you know, that kind of thing and did all that kind of stuff and did all this, that, and nothing couldn't get it. So finally she occurred to her, I know how to get him. I know how to get him. I'll make him sit in the corner and be still. I'll make him sit in the corner and be still. So he sat in the corner and he can feel there like, yeah. You know, and he was submissive and all this sort of stuff. And she went up there to him and said, Johnny, how's it going? He said, Teacher, on the outside I might be sitting down, but on the inside I'm running around all over this room. You could be one of those children here now. On the outside you're sitting down, but on the inside you're running all over the room. And you and God know it. What if you ask God to forgive you? And what if you ask Mom and Dad to forgive you? What kind of witness would that be? Dad? Father, what if you've habitually abused the authority in your home? There's two ways to abuse it. Either to exercise it like John Wayne in True Grit or to not exercise it at all, both of which are wrong. What if you've not led? What if you've been lax a days ago about spiritual matters in your home and your spiritual, and your, and your spiritual condition has been worldly, secular? What if, you're, what if your children are confused about who you are and how much you love Jesus? I can get up here and spout all around my big mouth and tell you how much I love Jesus, but if you want real confirmation, go get my wife alone and my children and ask them. And if their testimony would be, oh, I've seen very little of Him in you. I've very seen little hunger for His Word. Hunger for personal, private worship. I've seen little, uh, just a little bit of that. If that's your testimony, He'll forgive you that quick. Ask God to forgive you. Repent and then do this. Go ask your wife and your children to forgive you. Wife, if you've given the appearance, if you're Johnny, if you're little Johnny, let's say you're Alice, and you give the appearance on the outside that you're submissive, but on the inside you're running around all over the room, and you and Jesus know it, ask God to forgive you. He'll forgive you that quick. And then ask your husband and your children to forgive you. The Bible says in Proverbs 14:1 that a wise woman builds her house, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. Do you want your life to confirm the gospel? Or do you want it to be a living contradiction to it? That's the question.